0: We are, we're about midway through our series in Psalms, and I hope it has been a enjoyable experience for you, and um, just to give you a little insight into what um, a pastor experiences as you're sort of like preparing sermons, the people in your church do come through your mind as you're preparing, not that you're making specific points for them, but you're thinking of them, and you're considering them, and you want to be sensitive to them, and as you move through a passage of scripture, you, you, know, you want to make it as kind of like relevant and sort of accessible as possible. And some passages make that really easy for you to do. So some passages, they're just like, well, I'm looking at Brent here, they're like a golf ball on a tee, <laughs> just like ready to just be, right, just smacked, or like a baseball on a, on a tee, right? And then some passages are like Fort Knox, and it requires so much like work just to like you know to mine the depths to get something and then sometimes you you finish your sermon and you say well that's a lot of feels like a lot of technical biblical and theological information i don't know how these people are going to experience this and at the end of the day all you can say is well i think i've faithfully sort of transmitted the information onto paper in a way that i can preach it and so some you know every sermon's not the same And every psalm is not the same. And so they feel different. And our experience from sermon to sermon can feel different. So it's good to have that in your mind to teach yourself how to be a good listener to sermons, how to be a good hearer of sermons uh, so that your expectations are such that you can really absorb the word of God in in the way that we're meant to. Our sermon this morning is from Psalm 2. And this is a, what's called a royal psalm or an enthronement psalm. We've talked about like lament psalms, psalms that sort of like grieve over sin, feeling, maybe feeling abandoned by God, psalms of thanksgiving, where there's sort of a kind of an exulting in what God has done for, for us. And, um, and this is a psalm, a royal psalm or an enthronement psalm. So let's read Psalm 2 for our time in the word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, now we thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would send the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we might... Uh, be prepared, our hearts might be prepared to receive the truth of this passage, that you might transform us through the hearing and preaching of the Word of God. Lord, that our hearts might be convicted and convinced by its truth, and that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. We pray all these things in the strong and mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In the George Steinbeck novel of Mice and Men, George Milton and Lenny Small are migrant field workers in California during the Great Depression. George Milton is an uneducated but an intelligent man. Lenny, a bulky, strong man, but mentally disabled, travels everywhere with George, who keeps him out of trouble. Lenny is kind and hardworking, but he has trouble controlling himself. He loves the touch of small, soft animals, but he always kills them. He doesn't do it on purpose. He he just can't control his power, and he keeps crushing them in his hands like a little child would, a puppy or a kitten. As long as his friend George is there to manage him, Lenny stays out of trouble. But he doesn't always want to be managed. One day, a woman, the, wa- the wife of the boss's son, comes into the barn where Lenny is by himself. And she offers to let him touch her hair. <clears throat> well, as you can imagine, once he feels her soft, luxurious hair, he can't let go. And the results are disastrous, In the presence and care of his friend George, he's safe from himself, but left to his own judgment, Lenny abuses his strength, and in the end, he kills not an animal, but a person. Literary critics have posited that the book is really a commentary on the exploitation of power. Well, you know, the nations of the world are that way. Autonomously and independently of God's wise and steward oversight, they exploit their power, and we know from history the results are often disastrous. The last century shows that, proves that to us. When you look at Psalm 2, what jumps out at you is the author's astonishment at the rebellion of the nations against the Lord and his anointed. There is this astonishing rebellion in the first couple of verses. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain or conspire? There's this sense of astonishment because God's original purpose for mankind was to bless the nations. So if someone ever says, well, what is the the whole point? What was the original purpose of the creation, at least God's creation of human beings? The answer is, besides to glorify himself, that's always the right answer. But a second right answer is God wanted to bless the nations. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, I will bless and multiply you and your offspring. I will make your name great, so that in you all of the nations of the world will be blessed. God wants to bless the nations. That's the heart of God. As they submit to his wisdom, they could and would potentially prosper. That was God's heart for the nations. The problem is the nations appear time and time again in scripture as opponents to God. Right? God wants to bless the nations, the nations oppose God. Got these two things going on. They appear as opponents to God. And this is sort of the key to unlock all of Scripture. At least this is Scripture's view of all of world history. The nations in opposition to God. God wants to bring them in, wants to bless them, but the nations resist, right? Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The powers that be, so to speak, in this passage of scripture, they've consulted, they've met together, so to speak, in sort of a council, a cabal, and they've decided that God's not for them. You know people like that? Sure, of course you do, right? Nah, no thanks, you know, God's, God's not for me. It's good for you. that's just not my thing. God's not for me. And this passage is saying the rulers of the nations have conspired together. They've consulted together and said, not for us. We'll govern ourselves. Thanks, though. That's the image of the nations. They want to be free of God and they view any sort of like social or moral constraint as like shackles. right? Anything that would sort of point us to like the way that God has indicated for us to live so that we might have peace and prosperity it's like slavery to these rulers and really this is, this is really the rulers of the nations are a stand in for like the people who run the world the rulers of the nations today certainly there is a context in the ancient world when Psalm 2 was written but really it's just a stand in for any ruler at any time of any nation in the world throughout all of history they say no, we'll do our own thing, because whatever God's word or instruction says for us, that's like shackles. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so any social order or institution that pays deference to God and his ways, whether it's the church or some type of you know, laws that reflect God's moral character, to them is Slavery. If it feels like at times you're witnessing a concerted effort to dismantle—excuse dismantle, me, dismantle—biblical uh, values in our nation, you're not imagining things, all right? This is not in your head. It is not some type of erroneous slippery slope argument. There is absolutely an effort to dismantle biblical values in our nation, and uh, it's been that way for a while. And the sad thing about it is that uh, America really leads the the way among the nations in rebellion against God. But God responds in verses 4 and 6, Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. Now, maybe the idea in the world we live in today of like God laughing doesn't sit too well with us. Like, what is God laughing at? Is he laughing at human suffering? No. Is God laughing at advancements in medicines where, like, cures for polio and, you know, smallpox have been invented? No, that's not what God's laughing at. Is God laughing at, like, you know, advancements in engineering where safer buildings and transportation, you know, has been developed? That's not what God is laughing at. But what God laughs at, he laughs at human pride, he laughs at the idea that we're the masters of our own universe. God laughs at the idea that we can sort of govern ourselves as gods, completely autonomous. He laughs at the idea that in our arrogance, we act like God, that we control the outcome of history this may be actually the biggest idol for for human beings in fact I would say it actually is the biggest idol for human beings going all the way back to the garden of eden because what adam and eve were grasping for was autonomy we don't want to do things god's way I have I have more fun doing things my way or at least it seems right And this sort of idol of freedom and autonomy where we just kind of govern ourselves and whatever God has to say about the world is just sort of a suggestion. This idol that is at the core of human sin and rebellion all the way since the Garden of Eden is autonomy, freedom to do whatever I want to do, you know? And God responds with laughter and it's not the kind of laughter, like, giggling, happy. Like, it's, it's scorn, right? Have you ever heard that phrase, you know, they were laughed to scorn? Well, God is laughing in, in a scornful manner the nations that are essentially trying to be God themselves. <clears throat> he laughs at our arrogance. He laughs at the idea that the rulers of nations are really in control, but they're not, you know? And in verse 5, he says to them, <clears throat> in his wrath... And in his fury, he says, and mind you, he's saying this to the kings of the nations in rebellion, well, I've got my own king, you kings. You rulers of the nations. I've got my own king, my own ruler, who I'm gonna set on my holy hill. God responds. His answer to the revolt of of kings and empires is to announce that he's installed his own king, on his holy mountain. In other words, God has someone who represents him. God has sent someone, will send someone into the world that reflects his reign, his rule, his sovereign power. His divine authority. And this is a common motif in the ancient Near East where kings had a special revelation Excuse me, a special relationship to the gods. In the ancient Near East, the king was seen as sort of, you know, the stand-in for whatever god they served. Certainly the gods of Egypt uh, uh, were seen to be invested in the pharaoh. This is maybe familiar to some of you. The pharaoh sat on the throne over the Egyptian empire, and he spoke for the gods. His power was the power of the gods, And he ruled and reigned in place of the gods of Egypt. And so the king or the ruler was seen as having like a special delegation of power among other human beings. He has divine power to execute justice or wrath. And power was mediated through him as sort of the agent of divine authority. You can think of You can think of a supervisor on a job on some level who tells everybody else what to do because upper management has invested this person with a special delegation of power. They have been invested with certain privileges to be able to say things to other people who ostensibly are just like them, but because they hold an office, a position, they have a title, they're able to do and say things, they can hire people, they can fire people, the problem, of course, is when we think about kings, certainly kings of Israel, right? you think of the most powerful kings of Israel, David and Solomon, or many other kings of Israel and Judah, but even in David and Solomon's, the height of their power, they were always a minor player on the scene. So, like, I grew up in church, and I grew up reading the Bible my whole life, and so I have this grand, exalted idea of ancient Israel. But the truth is like in history Israel was this tiny little nation this itty bitty -bitty little piece of geography and like on the secular scene of world history they had very very little influence in fact if you read like like the histories of Persia and Babylon and Egypt I mean Israel was a nothing nation they were nothing and we, that may, like, offend our sensibilities because we know who the God of Israel is, but, like, in, in history, they really did not have all that much power ever. So the person being talked about here cannot be referring to any of the historical kings of Israel because they never exerted that kind of power. One commentator on the book of Psalms says that the logic of the the psalm in Psalm 2 is not historical. It's theological. There is something happening here in Psalm 2 that is really not pointing to any of Israel's history. It is pointing to something grander, something theological, at least not a part of Israel's past history. Who then is this talking about? Who is this anointed one? Well, verses seven through nine gives us the identity. The identity is revealed. Psalm 2 and 7, I will tell of the decree. This is, the, this is, this is this, the ruler is talking here in the psalm. The Lord said to me, this ruler says, you are my son. And this is the only appearance of the word son as a title of a Davidic king in the psalms. And this is important because it's not talking about some ruler of Israel's monarchy in any historical sense. Verse eight continues, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And if you haven't already picked up by this point in our text, this is God's central word to us about Jesus. This is God's word to us about his son, Jesus the Messiah, the son of God who's been given the nations as an inheritance to rule over with power and majesty and wisdom. And we see it picked up in the New Testament, right? This this primary identification as this Jesus of Nazareth, this kind of character who comes out of some backwater region of Israel called the Galilee, which is like, like the hillbilly region of Israel. And at every turn, God declares over this person, this is my son. In Mark 1, when he gets baptized, a voice from heaven, the father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration in Mark 9 and 7, God says, this is the son, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And if, if, you, if you don't remember the story, if you've never read the story, Moses and Elijah appear before the, the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter says, let's make a shrine to all three of them. And the other two, Moses and Elijah, disappear. And a voice from heaven speaks out saying, no, this is my son, listen to him. In other words, this person has been invested with a special delegation of divine power what he says is a fulfillment of everything that came before him, of Moses and Elijah, which is the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And this, in this one person, Jesus, this passage is fulfilled. And if you were a first century Jew, hearing a voice from heaven said, saying, this is my son, especially if you knew your Bible, if you were a first century Jew who knew your Bible, and most observant Jews knew their Bible, they would have thought psalm 2 this is the lord's anointed they they didn't have maybe the distractions we have today right they knew their bible it was you know people knew they had one you know even 150 years ago people had far less you know we have hundreds of books today right but I, i read something recently that said even even 150 years ago people owned very few books but the books they owned they knew They had read them over and over and over and over again. That's why novels written 150 years ago have so much biblical language. And some of the authors were atheists, but it was just the air that people were breathing. Well, the Bible for the first century Jew, that was just the air they breathed. And so to hear a voice from heaven say, this is my son, they would say, this is the Davidic ruler. Prophesied about centuries ago that we were waiting for. Listen to him. And instead of the nations being destroyed, God offers an alternative. So I just want to say, like, when we think about God, even the God of the Old Testament, like this, there's this narrative going on in our culture right now. Like the God of the New Testament is really nice. The God of the Old Testament is like, like, you know, a meanie. And I just want to say, like, like, what Old Testament are you reading? Because, yeah, there are, like, places in the Old Testament where there were historical battles where, like, God commanded... the the Israelites to go into Canaan and destroy the Canaanites. But like those are like small sections of the Old Testament, which is actually two-thirds of the Bible. And I mean, there's an explanation for that, but the vast majority, the overwhelming testimony is of God's mercy, God's love, his loving kindness, his patience, his grace, all throughout the Old Testament. And God offers an alternative to the nations being destroyed. This is the alternative in Psalm 2, 2 and 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. In other words, do what's best here. Don't get yourselves destroyed. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's like, it's like a bunch of people gathering in a room without any potential escape routes and God opens a side door. You know, it's like someone yells fire in a crowded room and God says, no, go out this door. Be smart about it, guys. Come on. There's no, there's no reason to die here. There's no reason to be destroyed. There's no reason to perish. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son. Honor my anointed And this is the message that still persists today from the heart of God to the nations of the world. And it's a warning, but it's also an invitation to God's grace. Be warned, be wise, don't be foolish. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling and kiss and honor the son, my anointed, because it's him, don't pay attention to the rulers, it's him who I've invested with all of my power and sovereign rule to reign over the earth. And it doesn't look like it now, maybe. And this is, this is where the disjunction is in our experience, because the Bible declares one thing often, but our own experience of life feels something that's completely different, right? It's like God is sovereign, he's in control, and your life is in total chaos, right? There's like this disconnect, right? And that's hard, that's hard for us as human beings. And scripture is there to remind us of a future that is, that is totally secure, but has not exactly been manifested fully in front of us. And there's this declaration that God is saying that he has invested as a ruler over all the rulers, all of his power, to reign over the earth. The nations could be broken with a rod of iron into pieces like a clay pot, I mean, you've seen a clay pot before, you know? and it looks nice but it doesn't i mean it doesn't take much you hit a stick boom and it just shatters into shards and this is what god is saying like the nations to me if i wanted to they're like a clay pot and the power i've invested in my son is like the power of a rod of iron hitting a clay pot it's just this image for us to think about and it's an interesting theological move here right they can be destroyed, shattered like a clay pot, or they can kiss the sun. They can honor the sun. It's an interesting theological move here because the world is not just seen in terms of individual responsibility of persons as if somehow we're all unrelated. This may be, I don't know, this may be a drawback of Western civilization, right? The Enlightenment gave us the idea of like self-determination. Like, If your father was a blacksmith, you didn't have to be a blacksmith. Right? You could determine your own future. If you want to be like a lawyer or something else, you could do that. You weren't, you know, historically, whatever your dad was, you were and your son was going to be, and that was the end of the story. The Enlightenment sort of, you know, there are bad things in the Enlightenment. The good, thing, good part of the Enlightenment is that it sort of, like, changed that, the idea of, like, self-determination and freedom. And America was sort of founded on those ideal, uh, ideals, and, but it transformed into, like, this idea of, like, rugged individualism. And that has served our country well for a long time, But it's crept into the church where we even understand our relationship with God or the relationship of human beings to God solely in individualistic terms. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that per se because each one of us has to give an individual account to God for what we do with the knowledge we've been given, the knowledge of God, right? But there is a sense in which the nations bear a corporate responsibility before God. At least, like, that language in Scripture never completely disappears, the idea that the nations themselves, corporately, groups of people corporately, are responsible before God. There's a corporate identity of the nations to kiss and honor God's Son as the Messiah, the Lord of all the Earth. <clears throat> this might explain why some nations are different than others. Maybe some nations you know, some nations are prosperous, some nations are. I don't know. I can't say with any certainty. <clears throat> but it certainly seems that the story of certain nations shakes out differently. <clears throat> and as such, throughout history, nations have honored Jesus and have prospered. Nations that have sought to embody his words and his message certainly have flourished. But surprisingly, and this, 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 is, this is where I'll throw a curveball into the whole program here. Is the nations that seem to be Christian on the surface, we often associate with like the you know great military powers of the earth, certainly in the Western world, but that but they may not actually be all that Christian. So, on, for, so I just I did something here. I sort of propped up your idea that oh the prosperous powerful nations are blessed by God because those are the Christian nations, and now I'm saying actually they may not be. Their power and military might may actually sort of preclude them being Christian nations. Why is that? In the Gospels, the political and military idiom of this psalm is transformed in Jesus' life into an evangelical model. It will not be power and violence that's the motif of conquest. So this son of God, this anointed king is not going to reign and rule over the world the way all the other nations do with military power. But it's his power is seen in his life, his preaching, his teaching, his suffering, his self-sacrifice. his person, his death, his resurrection. That's God's sovereign response to every seat of power throughout all history and every use of power that is independent of God's rule. So God's response to all geopolitical military power throughout all of history is Jesus and the life of Jesus his preaching, his teaching, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. That is God's response to the raging of the nations in all of their might and in all of their power. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ who came into this world weak and vulnerable and suffered and died. And that is enough to make you scratch your head because it is a total critique of world history. It's a critique of world power Jesus in his life and in his teaching. So what does that mean for us as Christians? It means that the universal significance of the sonship of Jesus for human history is that God's son in himself is a critique of world power, and that the kingdom grows not by spreading warfare, at least not traditionally understood, but by Spiritual warfare? Because the weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are not carnal. They're not physical. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It's spiritual. And this is God's critique. It is by prayer, by the preaching of the Word of God, by steadfast love, and yes, even by our human weaknesses that the powers of this world are defeated which means what you often observe with your eyes is not really telling the whole story. When a martyr is kidnapped in a foreign country and killed and executed, actually there is a victory happening over the powers of this world in a cosmic, spiritual, mystical way that that is boggling the mind. That in human weakness, which relies on God's power, the powers of this world, the powers of darkness are being vanquished and defeated. Every time we submit and surrender our lives to God in humble obedience and recognize, and this, and this is where trials and suffering are good for you, because they force you to relinquish control and say, I have no power to change my circumstance. I have no power to do anything about this cancer or this divorce or this situation or this financial pickle I'm in. God's in control. I have no power to fix it. And what's hard for us is the world standard of success and achievement is the opposite. And they may be some of our own friends and even people we go to church with. But God's standard is that in your weakness, who who knows how that finishes? In your weakness, his strength is made perfect. There's something about weakness that actually empowers us with great power because when we set aside our own strength, our own ability, our own competence to sort of be successful in the world, that's when God's own power comes sweeping in. And you'll find that the weaker you are in this world if you're relying on the Lord, the more demonstration of God's power you'll see. The stronger you are, sort of the less you experience God. The more competent you are, the more materially satisfied you are, the healthier you are, because you don't need God a whole lot, because you've got your own strength, your own power, your own abilities. When all of those things fade away, and you find yourself helpless, the power of God is made manifest in a profound and amazing way. The warfare of the powers of the earth against God will reach its climax. We know that, so I don't want to make it out to seem that that God has essentially responded to world, the rebellion of the nations with simple passivity. You know, Revelation tells us that God will destroy the dark powers of this world once and for all and vanquish and put down all rebellion. Revelation 11:18. the nations raged, picking up on Psalm 2, but your wrath came to destroy the destroyers. God is judged, that day is coming. God will not always sit idly by. Will God judge the wicked nations and put down all human rebellion? Yes, absolutely. Those who oppose the Son, His King, His anointed, every knee will bow, Philippians 2.10 tells us. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. But in the meantime, for us Christians, We stand in a long line of people who believed in God, who followed God's Son, who kissed the Son. Here is a word for you. While we are living in the already of the Messiah, the not yet of his rule and dominion over the nations being fully manifested, we're given a strategy. A declaration of the Son's enthronement when we hear in Matthew 28 18. All authority and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what with these rebellious nations? These wicked nations who rage and conspire and plot against the Lord and his anointed? Disciple them. Disciple the nations. And when we hear that, we're hearing the Christian version of the grant of the Old Testament messianic king ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us hearts to kiss the Son. Minds to honor your anointed. It's it's not because we one day decided we wanted to give up our old sinful life, it is only by grace. We would not have, we, we, we really wouldn't have been any different than the Pharisees who were unable to recognize Jesus as that son promised in Psalm 2 without your grace and the inner working of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to enlighten us. Help us, Lord God, to recognize that though one day you will vanquish all rebellious, all the rebellion of the nations of this world, in the meantime, you command us to disciple the nations, the nations that you are bringing under your sovereign power and dominion. Help us to be filled with a sense of zeal about this mission about this word of comfort about this charge about this command that the nations are yours and all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you and so we can go forward proclaiming your lordship your kingship that you reign and you rule in the kingdom of men